Good morning, historians from around the internet. Welcome back to the Old History Podcast, where the goal is to just talk about history and maybe somebody somewhere will learn something. At least I hope so. So, uh, I did get a chance to talk with that family, and we're going to try, whenever I have the time, we're going to try and set up a meeting to uh, look at the documents and stuff and just see what can be done with it. I know there's a lot of pictures, and... uh, I'm going to try and scan those for sharing on the Old History Facebook page. So you're just keep an eye out. I don't know when that'll happen, but just keep an eye out, and I'll, I'll make an official announcement uh, on that, I guess. Well, I'll, I'll talk to the family, and then, and then we'll go from there. As far as all that goes, uh, nothing really new in the world of Old History. Uh, I did meet up with... Mrs. Wild Moon, the owner of uh, Hay Slope, and we were just talking about the future plans for the house and stuff, and we went into the, the woods beside the house and found a chimney, well, I knew it was there, because I metal detect there, and I did, well, I did, and I'd, I'd seen the chimney before, but we didn't know exactly what it was, so she has done quite an outstanding bit uh, quite an outstanding bit of research on that house and we've concluded that the chimney belonged to uh, one of the resort houses because Hayslope was sort of like a little retreat back in its day and the resort there were three resort houses and one of them was a two-story house and I believe that the chimney was for the two-story house it was supposed to be the nicest one so outside of that uh, I want to try and go up there and weed eat around a little bit because there's a lot of ivy. Just, just, I just want to see what's in the ground, and she does too. So that's in the. I mean, I might share. I'm going to share some pictures of that, but it's not really interesting per se. No, no, anyway. So here lately, for the last little while, we've been covering the p- politics of America, and we're getting into. Like a lot of a lot of spider webs where you can go like a hundred different ways with what we can talk about and so I'm going to take a little bit of a break for that and figure out what I want to talk about next and I think I'm going to get into the Civil War maybe because you're, you're getting into the Industrial Revolution and you're getting into different sorts of politics and all that so I think I think I'm just going to step back from this just for maybe a week or two and talk about some other stuff uh, but today we're going to talk about Ducktown and I've covered it before uh, a long time ago but Ducktown basically is called the Ten- used to be called the Tennessee Desert it was the largest large one of the largest man-made biological events in, in the nation so as always you can subscribe to the podcast it's not required at all uh, required to listen you know I I believe knowledge should be free but if you're feeling generous it is there you can subscribe right here on anchor for like 99 cents a month again not required to listen so as always go check out my good friend Jason at the beard guy and friends let's dive right in shall we Alright, 
So Ducktown, Tennessee. Ducktown and Copper Hill, Tennessee. In August, uh, hold on. I'm reading this from several different websites. Uh, put it together. AppalachianHistory.net. Uh, David Tabler wrote wrote an article about this, 2017. Perma.cc. GAMineral.org. I actually have permission to use their photographs, by the way. And then, of course, a I think this is caselaw.findlaw.com for uh, finding a law case. So, okay, so getting into the podcast. Those are just my sources. So, August of 1943, a Tennessee gold prospector working on Potato Creek discovered a, a certain reddish-brown and black decomposed rock that contained deep red crystals. His gold turned out to be red copper oxide, which at that time, this copper deposit was one of the world's largest finds. This discovery would impact the lives of Copper Basin residents for literally for general generations. Population growth, land speculation, and numerous mine openings and other related activities led to a boom in this area by the early 1850s. Nobody, absolutely nobody, knew that this quote-unquote state-of-the-art technology being used at the time to process copper would have such horrendous effects on the environment. In fact, the, the, the devastation to the environment was so great that the Copper Basin was once considered the largest man-made biological desert in the nation. Over 50 square miles, that's, that's around 32, 33,000 acres, was absolutely stripped and denuded of vegetation, which, which when it rained, uh, huge mounds of soil would be washed away every single rainfall. Sulfuric acid fumes filled the bowl like topography and would lead to the nation's first look at the long-term effects of acid rain. This would be located, now for those of you not around Tennessee, uh, not from this area, I know I have people from all over listening, uh, Ducktown is located in an extreme southwest corner of Tennessee in a little place called Polk County. Three veins of copper, um, it's actually right at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, the three veins of copper would run through the basin and each would attract several mining companies who were very ready to uh, exploit the land and exploit the resource. And so before we, you know, the settlers got into drilling, for, you know, mining for copper, the it is known that the Cherokee would produce some copper. I don't know exactly what they done with it. Uh, maybe somebody, I can get somebody to chime in. But anyway, but they, they did that for generations. They knew about it. But by the time the Treaty of New Echota came around in 1836, they basically gave up many of their lands, including those in the Copper Basin. Many of the natives who would Stay, who stayed in the basin after the treaty were removed by the army in 1838 during the Trail of Tears. Now because, going back into modern times here, because there were no roads into the basin, settlement was very slow to occur. As I don't know if anybody's, you know, again, 
I've been down there once. Um, it's way far out there, you know, and you can have to imagine what it looked like back then before uh, copper, uh, copper mining eroded everything. So the first white settlers came to the area to farm, and until 1839 there was very little white settlement. There, there was no reason for them to come in. Prices were lowered from the starting price of $7.50 an acre, which had been established when the land was surveyed after the Indian removal to only $1 an acre. The farming community of Pleasant Hill was founded around 1840, east of present-day Copper Hill, which back then it was called McKay's. This would be the first organized settlement around this area. The lack thereof roads in the, to the basin would basically increase its, increase its isolation and, and prevented any sort of economical growth ship, or any kind of shipment of goods outside of or into the basin. So basically helped to retain a very agricultural lifestyle. All they could do is farm. I mean, up until that point, they were happy with it. The earliest recorded shipment of copper out of the basin occurred in 1847, which was shipped by a mule, and it was 90 casks of copper down to Dalton, Georgia, where the nearest railroad was. It was then shipped north, uh, shipped north to the Revere Smelting Works in Boston. In 1851, the Copper Road between Hawassi and Cleveland began to be constructed in Bradley County, and it was completed in 1853. Now, at least copper could be taken at least a little bit quicker by copper haulers to Cleveland for shipment, and other goods could be brought back into the basin. Copper haulers could make this journey in two days, spending the night at a halfway house. And then on the return trip from Cleveland, the wagons were usually loaded with merchandise for the stores and with mining supplies. The original road was used throughout the 1800s as the only way to ship copper out of the basin. This road was later used for Highway 64. Moving up about five years, in 1857, the only five, there were only five mines operating regularly down there. It would be the Tennessee, Mary's, the Isabella Mine, Eureka, and the Hawassi Mine. The mines in the basin began to consolidate into three large companies. They would call themselves the United Mining... The Un Hold on, let me back up. The Union Consolidated Mining Company, the Burra Burra Copper Company, and the Ducktown Copper Co. Now, unfortunately, as is a repeating fashion here, when the Civil War came around, it disrupted a lot of work at the mines, as the miners would leave to fight in the war, and the mines would be closed down. Many mine interests and smelting plants were owned by northern industrialists who closed the mines in late 1861. The Confederacy would gain ground here, and they would hold it in 1863, and they would sell the mines to southern capitalists to provide the South with much-needed copper. The mines would operate at a reduced capacity throughout the end of 1863, and federal troops would again contain, gain control of the area. After the Civil War, the miners and their families returned, and the damage to the mines was repaired, and the mines reopened. 
The Burra and Union Mines were reopened in 1866, and they would be the first to do so. So going back to the Civil War, just right quick, uh, when Union troops had attempted to recapture Ducktown and Copper Hill, they destroyed the copper refinery and a mill in Cleveland, and this caused mining to cease until 1866. Anyway, it would continue uh, between 1866 until 1878 when the mines would exhaust the shallow high-grade copper ore. By the late 1870s, most of the mining companies would begin to fail because there was really no, there wasn't an adequate form of transportation to get into there. It was basically, it was nonsensical to try and mine and you wasn't even able to ship the stuff out. They could only do it by a couple of mules. And the, the decreasing quality of ore also was a contributing factor. So the cost of transporting the ore would have been greatly reduced by rail. And we're getting into something cool here, but without rail transportation, it was basically nonsensical. It was un uneconomical to ship it. They couldn't make any money at it. So the copper mines basically became idle for, for more than 10 years until the Marietta in North Georgia built a spur line into the area, north to the area, excuse me. And the arrival of the railroad ended the isolation of the ba uh, basin and made transportation of people and products and equipment a little bit easier. The Georgia spur would be met with a spur from the upper Tennessee. Now, a very major obstacle in the Tennessee line was the Hawassi River Gorge, the 426 foot difference in height between the north and south shores of the river. George Eager of the Knoxville Southern Railroad built a switchback to eliminate the obstacle, and the switchback was located near uh, Farner, also in Polk County. The railroad, com the completed railroad, resembled a W, built up the river gorge. These two lines consolidated in 1890 as the Marietta, as the Marietta and North Georgia Railroad it was passed into receivership in 1891 and reorganized in 1895 as the Atlantic, Knoxville, and Northern Railroad Construction Company, or AK and N, as it was abbreviated. In 1896, it was finally incorporated and began to run the rail line. By the 1890s, the Ducktown Sulphur, Copper, and Iron Company of London, England reopened the Mary Mine and built a furnace with it with a 100-ton-a-day smelting limit. Also around the same time, the open-roast heap smelting process of copper was begun. And this process and the high sulphur content in Polk County Copper created sulfuric acid fumes which combined with the timber cut as fuel basically denuded everything. Destroyed all the trees, all the grass, all the vegetation. They replaced the Cumberstone switchback at the Hawassi Gorge with a loop around Bald Mountain in the gorge. The loop was necessary because a train could pull only three or four cars up the switchback and a pusher train was needed to help the trains get up the mountain. This was very time consuming at a time when the line was getting more traffic. T.A. Aber, I believe I pronounced that right, 
a civil engineer with the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, designed a loop around Bald Mountain in the middle of the Hawassi River to eliminate the switchback. The loop, which was over 8,000 feet long, would circle the mountain one and a half times up a passable grade until it reached the plateau height near Farner, which was a little bit north of Ducktown. Trains would begin running the, over the loop in 1898, and they continue to do so today. By 1899, the Tennessee Copper Company had leased the lines from most of the other mining companies in the basin. They would build a new smelter in McKay's, which would go on to be renamed Copper Hill, and they built a railroad between Ducktown and the smelter. And they began a new mine, the Burra Burra Mine, near the Hawassi Mine site. Now, two lawsuits, several lawsuits actually would come come out of this involving the uh, the basin copper industry. This would involve landowners and even another state. Tennessee courts ruled that the value of copper companies' contributions to the county outweighed the damages they caused. Before the copper industry came to the area, there were only around 200 residents, and the court noted that and really pushed, like, hey, nobody's here. The open roast heat method of smelting you know, they claimed was the only known smelting method at that time. The next one is Georgia versus Tennessee Copper Company, which was in 1906. The Supreme Court basically heard Georgia's claim that the Tennessee Copper Co. was taking away its sovereign rights of control over its land and air. This would become the first environmental lawsuit to go up to the Supreme Court level. Basically, where it's at, if a good strong wind was coming from the north, it would push that stuff down into Georgia and basically extend the desert down into there. And they were upset about it, rightly so. They were seeking an injunction that prevented the Tennessee Copper Company from using the open roast heat method. In the end, several U.S. presidents... Uh, and a lot of public figures would come to be involved in this, but nobody really wanted to shut down an industry that employed thousands of people. In the end of it, the Copper Co. Lord have mercy. The court found for Georgia, but did not issue the injunction because by then, the Tennessee Copper Company had began construction of an acid reclamation plant near Copper Hill, and eventually acid a sulfuric acid would replace copper as the company's major product. So, while the court ruled for Georgia, the mine still technically won. Because if they had shut it down, if they had issued that injunction, that would have basically ended the mining right then and there, and it would have destroyed the copper basin, the economy of the copper basin completely. So, Within two decades of the of the ruling, the first efforts would be made to reclaim the barren landscape. These efforts would continue into the 1990s, and actually, it's still being it's they're still working on it even today. Reforestation, uh, reforestation efforts began in the 1920s and 1930s, and concentrated efforts began in the 1940s. Early efforts were carried out by the mining companies and TVA and hundreds of acres of pine were planted between 1939 and 1944. 
1941, TVA established a CCC camp in the basin to enhance their tree planting efforts. They built dams, planted trees, and covered the ground with straw to prevent runoff. Sixteen buildings existed in 1941, and all that remains of all that remains are the ruins of some foundations and leveled sites where the buildings stood. In 1942, a large sulfuric acid plant was built at Copper Hill. With copper slowly got, you know, it was, like I said earlier, sulfuric acid was becoming more valuable than copper, and copper by this time was slowly dying out. The end of the 1950s saw the close of the Burra Burra mine, which had operated for over 80 years, and had produced some 15 and a half to 16 million tons of ore in its lifespan. The Tennessee Copper Company would be bought by City Services in 1963 and would become the Tennessee Chemical Company by the 1980s. And throughout the 1980s, the vast company and land holdings began to be sold off. And on July 31st, 1985, the copper mines were closed for good, bringing an end to mining in the Copper Basin. The Tennessee Copper Company continued to uh, produce sulfuric acid until the 2000s when it filed for bankruptcy. The production facilities were purchased by Bolden, I'm not going to try to pronounce that, that's Swiss, and was renamed BIT Manufacturing. And from what I understand, it still operates to this day, but not as much as it used to. So. That's the end of the podcast for today. I hope everybody's enjoyed this a little bit. Uh, I did make a video of this on the YouTube channel a long time ago. You can go look at it. It's called, let me go to it here, Ducktown, the Red Hills of Tennessee. It's a five-minute long video. It shows a lot of pictures from around the area. And it's only five minutes long. So, all right. Anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, Hope you guys enjoyed the podcast, and we'll talk at you next time.